I've met a lot of business owners over the past who have done absolutely passionate work, but they've also forgotten the numbers. And that's one mistake we made in the early days. We were so passionately driven, building the right team, delivering the service to excellence, that we actually, I personally, I'll take responsibility for that. I took my eye off the ball on what the business needed in terms of cash flow yes. and forecasting, right? Because it was just yeah. driven out of sheer grit and passion. <laughs> gotcha. So I learned a big lesson because after the first four years, it was like a big wake up call. So you hit cash flow issues? Massively. Yeah. Massively. Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business, brought to you by The Online Co, where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and our guest on today's podcast is going to be a shot in the arm for anyone who's in business and has ever felt a bit stuck. Roger Vitanis is from Leadership Counts. He's a business advisor who helps entrepreneurial leadership teams to clarify and achieve their vision. With me is my co-host and marketing pro, Jess Caluso. G'day, Jess. Hey, James. How many kids are there in your family? Oh, I'm from a big family. So I'm, I'm one of four. Okay, I'm, me too. I'm one of four as well. That's oh, a good number. All right. Who is the best out of the four? One, two, three or four? Two, clearly. <laughs> well, that's wrong. It no, must be no. one. <laughs> it's number two, trust me. <laughs> okay, I'm number one. All right, now... Tell me about the youngest in your family. Oh, no. <laughs> you didn't go to the youngest, did you? I totally went there. Okay. So my parents are really good, right? They went boy, girl, boy, girl. So the youngest... Same. In... What? What? Yeah, okay. <laughs> How come I didn't know this before? Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so the youngest in, in our family is my younger sister. And I'm not going to mention her name. I won't embarrass her that much. But she's different to us three. She... Um... <laughs> I've got to be really careful here. <laughs> Don't forget Claire can edit. <laughs> I'm going to describe my younger sister as a spirited young lass. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to describe my younger sister as a spirited young lass. It looks uh, like there's more of a story to yes, this. Yes, there is. Well, so my youngest, who's probably listening, was maybe the most headstrong, the most fiery and the most outgoing Definitely would, the best people person out of the four of us. I would describe my younger sister the exact same. <laughs> and she tried to boss us all around. Yep, I'm now 33 years old and it, that still happens. Right. Well, I have four kids and our youngest pretty much fits that as well. Mm. So, Roger, you might be wondering why we're talking about this. Roger, our guest today, is the youngest of 10. That is a lot of kids. His parents <laughs> definitely didn't own a TV. <laughs> Roger has a list of business experiences as long as your arm, from helping his dad out as a little kid in the family business to international trade in the Middle East, starting up a national franchise in the UK and business brokering. And it's fascinating to hear how family dynamics and sibling relationships played into his business journey. He knows firsthand the things business people struggle with the most and his story is fascinating. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Now, you had a fascinating childhood and you're from a very large family and no doubt that's played a big role in who you are but also in your business journey. Tell us about growing up. Yeah, mum and dad uh, were born and married in Burma in Myanmar where many of us now know they've got uh, troubled times and have had for 60 years. But they had seven children in Burma. Seven of my siblings were born there and I was the youngest of three born in London. It was a very full house, three stories. So, so just to stop you there, that's seven plus three. That's, that's ten. Said, that's the youngest of ten. Youngest and, uh, of, yeah, okay. Not only ten, youngest yeah. of ten. 
But I think one of the profound memories I've always remembered, James, is Dad also gave a vow to his father-in-law to look after Mum's mother and sister. So we actually ended up having 14 people in the house. Wow. And, um, you know, when you've already got lots on your plate to take on that type of responsibility as well yeah. is just the mark of my father. Yeah, and, wow. Uh, the impact he's had on all of us as a family. So what did your dad do? So my dad was in the Burmese military <clears throat> initially and then went to London planning to um, open up restaurants, Burmese restaurants. Okay. And his chef actually had a heart attack on the cruise ship. And so there wasn't a plan B. But one of his uh, friends in London gave him a leg up to start a service station and he took it and he ended up having three. And that was the family business that each and every sibling and, and myself worked in. Right. And uh, we were always taught to, you know, to chip in. We were very good sports people in our family, or still are, um, and I was going to school every day just so excited to play sport. I loved it. I was not engaged, let's say, in the academia. When I went to represent the school at sort of year three and four, and I had to go to the lost property bin and find, you know, the kit, yeah. particularly the boots, it, it dawned on me that it was never going to come from mum and dad's purse strings, and I never wanted to put that on them either. So it yeah. taught me a really good lesson was fend for yourself and make it happen. So I was 12 years old and I knocked on dad's uh, sort of door of opportunity and said, can I come and work for you? And he said, <laughs> well, you know what time I leave on Saturdays? Yeah. And he used to wake me up with a cup of coffee at uh, 5.30. And Saturday if I morning. Yeah. And that was my start of, and also my first love of really understanding what business was about. What did you learn in terms of your work ethic and just being around your dad and your siblings? First of all, I learned that uh, dad wasn't going to allow nepotism to reign. Right. And I think that's no favoritism. No favoritism. It was, you, you're coming to do a role. You know, I turn up to work and I said, what's my first job? And he says, you're going to go and clean the toilets outside. And I said, <laughs> oh, great. Like, I do that at home anyway, dad, you know, like what's new? Yeah. But he said, yeah, but this is different. And he takes me to the toilets and uh, he spends 25 minutes cleaning them. Right. Uh, to my confusion, I asked him, what is the point of me being here? And he cleaned them like he would in the army. Of course, they're spotless. And I mean wow. spotless, James. And he's, he turns around to me and he literally raises his finger in a polite way. And he just says, don't ask someone to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. So he showed me the standard and he said, twice a day, that's what they're going to have to look like. Wow, that's that's quite a lesson number one in uh, yeah. running a business at, at mm. 12. Yeah. Well, for those sort of four years between 12 and 16, I worked at Dad's on the Saturdays and school holidays. I took more shifts yeah. and earned my fiver for the eight hours, which I loved. And, you know, back in those days when you got the cash in your hand yeah. as a pay packet, it was in a brown envelope. Yes. And something I think is really important for business today, fast forwarding, if I may, is just what is the exchange mm. feel like? When you've done a great job, you haven't taken shortcuts, you've given it your all energy. Mm. It comes with a thank you, eye to eye and a handshake. Dad always shook our hand, wow. looked us in the eye and said, good job, son. Well done. And then that was the thank you and the pay packet was the reward. It felt really tangible. Yes, I remember those little uh, envelopes. Yes. Yeah. Now, you actually got into the export trade as mm. a teenager. Yeah. What did that look like? The freight forward inside came because my brother Des, our eldest brother, whilst he was based in the Middle East, he established a freight forwarding company with two of his British Airways friends who became my bosses. And uh, having done work experience there, I really started to have an appetite for cargo. 
And um, I said I'd really love to learn more and I ended up leaving school after year 11 and going into that business. Yeah, so you learned export between the ages of 17 and 21. That's right. And became an export manager at 21. Yeah, I really had this strong appetite to solve people's issues and problems and that's what really freight forwarding is all about. So I started at around 24 to travel to Saudi Arabia. So what was it like working in the Middle East? Terrifying at first. I had no idea really what I was to try to converse, sell, what was the culture going to accept me. Uh, really massive imposter syndrome because I was like, should I even be here? Yeah. Am I experienced enough to be in this room with these people? Yeah. But with Desi's expertise and also his guidance from his partners, they just said, look, you're here for a reason. You know, I know what that reason is now. And that is that I build trust very quickly with people. Okay. And I should say earn trust from people quickly. And having gone to Saudi, one of the biggest things I've learned is who who can I be that's different to how the other freight forwarders were playing that market. Interesting. And the only way they played that market was pricing. Okay. So everything was won on that. <laughs> and of price. course, I'm a young man in a small family business and I'm not going to be winning on price. So just by asking some pertinent questions in a boardroom one day, which was with ABB, a very obviously global business, they said, we've got a problem with documentation and delays and costs mm. and it's really hurting. And I said, ah, now I've got a problem to solve. Yes. We're not talking about the price Anymore. discussion. Yeah. And that's turned me on to exactly how I could help them. And we filled the gap. So we became very attention to detail with all the bills of lading and airway bills and all the stuff they were suffering from. And we became like a London consolidator into the kingdom. So you really found a, a niche in very there. Very niche, yeah. Like a lot of business people, it sounds like you kind of stumbled into it. it just You were chatting with people and then up it came. And Yeah, what I had the most fear around is feeling that I was going to go back to London, back to the company to tell family staff that I failed because I was going like, how can I compete on the price? So I was almost a eureka moment for me. <laughs> it's like, yes, they've got a problem to solve. <laughs> I think uh, price is perhaps the most blunt instrument to mm. compete with. As a young man in a suit in 45 degrees, yes. it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge. But at the same time, keeping you cool around when people are flustering for a deal. The one thing I learned over the first couple of years of traveling to the kingdom and to Gulf states was, let me listen more because there's more to this than meets the eye. Mm. So I, you know, I, I certainly wasn't swagging around the kingdom or Riyadh or Jeddah saying, uh, I can help you, but it was more like, how can I help you? And I think that was the difference and we, and we really stumbled on a great niche. Listening is such a powerful business skill, isn't it? <laughs> the opportunities are there if you've got your ears open. As a youngest of 10, you do a lot of listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to get back to that. Um, the impact of being youngest of 10, I guess nine eldest siblings and mm. mum and dad, it'd be like having 11 parents. Certainly half a dozen. I would say probably the ones who are marginally older than me. Yeah. I would say we were like a little uh, clan uh, of groupies. <laughs> yeah, and, I guess uh, the oldies, yeah. Yeah, you know, the middle sisters very much the mothers in school holidays and uh, hard to take because you really right. do, yeah, don't get me wrong, wonderful, like blessed upbringing. Yes. But I think what you do, in, you internalise it to how can I get out of this jacket? Gotcha. You know, because it's, it's it was a very conformed time back then. It had to be structured and organised, as you can imagine. You say that, the, you know, the politics and the, the nepotism 
in that journey there really frustrated you. Mm. How did that play out? When I got back from Australia, Des had been headhunted and said to me, look, I've been headhunted and I want to go for it. So it means the veins are yours. So I, this is the point about envisioning or at least planning what you're actually signing up for. Yeah. And I didn't do that. I grabbed it. It was my ego talking to me more than okay. anything else. Like I'm the man. Yeah. So I'll take it and run with it. And I did. And I'm very proud of what we achieved. My nephew, his eldest son, worked in the business. Uh, we had a couple of family friends work in the business. A second nephew worked in the business over the years. My sister worked in the business. And when you have the family dynamic going on over the commercial outcomes, it's not mm. easy, of course. Anyone in family business knows that. However, I think it's the point of just making sure that we become on, on the same page. Seven years later, after the business exponentially grew, Every year I'd have the equity talk with Des. Yes. <laughs> and I just think, is there anything there? Yeah, yeah, it'll come, it'll come. And then when I turned 30, six years later, I said to him, look, it, it needs to happen now because I'm at an age where I really should put that at the forefront. And um, his family had grown. Right. And uh, the, the door had closed. Wow. The door had closed. And I was so angry at the time. We were in a Chinese restaurant and he, he was so cool about it. And he's a very cool guy. I mean... <laughs> I, I love him to bits and he, he he's one of the most articulated guys you'll meet and he just said to me I just it can't happen now and I was so upset and angry and I thought wow if, if a member of the family could do that how can I build trust with anyone else yeah but if we all really peel back the reasons why those outcomes happen to us we realize that we're part of the problem okay and I was part of the problem right, right? expecting maybe too much you know and uh, thinking that I deserved it or was entitled to it as a young man and maybe I wasn't. Right. Well, it takes a lot of humility to sort of come around to that and I guess there's two sides of every story, isn't there? Yeah. And, and it can yeah. be difficult to see your own half and to own it. Yeah, I got back in the car that night driving away from that Chinese restaurant and I looked myself, literally turned the rearview mirror to my face and I looked at myself and said, how could you let this happen? What, what did you miss? Yeah. And the first thing that really responded to me, and this is a bit spiritual for me, was just take responsibility. Yeah. Because you've grown up in a family that you may have conditioned yourself to think that people will look, look out for you because you're the youngest and you're the man, you're the brother. It's, it's not the case. So straight away there, I knew there had to be a change. But what it led to was this. I grabbed my journal. I've always had a journal. And I uh, always recommend you journaling, journaling, journaling your mind and thoughts and go as deep as you can. That next day, I literally just wrote a sentence on the journal on a blank page and it said, what the fuck do you want? And I realized that what I really wanted was probably recognition that I could do something on my own yeah. and do something on my own steam. And I just wrote a sentence that said, Build your own business, take responsibility for yourself and bring something into reality that you really want. And then I started to draw circles and it really became pictures of my vision. I drew groups of people which were fans really and I gave it the analogy of a stadium. Yeah. Build something that people really are helped by, they love, build a brand and do something where you're not relying on someone else. And that was my trigger 
which gave me the yes. courage to resign and move into that a, into a that business situation. Yeah, like I was, I remember I was in tears because I actually was half questioning myself and half defining my future. But what it taught me back there is that clarity right there was actually the one step I needed to help me go and commit. And after that, there was no looking back. And it drove me to the next opportunity. Right, so you've had an epiphany. Epiphany there. And then you start another business with another brother. Of course you go back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chris and I were football coaching and he was working for Southampton Football Club and we hadn't seen each other and we wanted to spend social time together. And it basically was a catalyst for talking about a new business model in sports teaching, education and coaching, which we've obviously been passionate about all our lives. But uh, I never thought it would come to a business in its own right. I thought it was a bit pie in the sky, to be honest. Okay. And a bit hobby-ish. Well, you guys are catching up at the pub and chatting about this and dreaming and, yeah. uh, all, you know, all the fun stuff that comes before the actual work. But at, but some, right. at some point you've said, all right. Yeah, line in the sand. Do, let's do this. And now, you know, it's good fun, but can we actually make it work as a business model? Yeah. So we pulled a sister in, Linda. She had a global franchise. When you've got so many siblings, you're my I know, there's always another one you can call on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Linda had successfully franchised uh, a language oh, uh, right. for children's business globally uh, with her husband. And she was both available and willing to give us counsel and help about what her journey looked like and what we would do to set up. And the three of us went on a, went on a journey. And it was, uh, quite frankly, when Chris and I first met at the pub, <laughs> I just the reason I said pie in the sky because you think how can, are you really going to get paid and make profit from something you actually just adore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like much it, fun. Yeah, it she felt get paid for that. Yeah, it, it feels felt, wrong. Felt, <laughs> it felt unreal and almost like cheating. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But it, it came real when we actually ended up corporatizing it. Yeah. So what did the first months of that process look like? You're a startup and you hadn't done startup before, had you? You'd, you'd worked for your dad and True. then you'd worked for your brother and now you're like complete blue sky, can create what I want here. Yeah, and I, those two journeys, both with dad in the servos and then Des in the cargo and his, the bosses who were really I reported to, they absolutely gave me those wheels right, mm. of training and commercial acumen to actually back yourself and go, you know what, I can do this. So those first three, six, nine, 12 months was just hard graft of building a brand, building a trust. We'd go into schools and say, we'd like to run your physical education here because we know you don't have qualified teachers to do it. And they would look at us and say, are you guys kidding yourselves? We don't pay for that. No, we're government. <laughs> and we're like, oh, really? <laughs> but the, the, the response that Chris and I had was a, a confidence response. And we said, well, we'll do it for free for a term if you accept our offer. And we'll prove to you who we are and what we're about. Because right now we get it that you don't know what we're about to do. But we also delivered our why. And our why was to coach children with active lifestyles, you know, counter obesity and sedentary issues. Okay. And as soon as we delivered our why, that was the flick of the switch to them. And they're like, that's on our agenda. All right. Well, you're in my happy place now. We're talking about marketing. So you've mentioned branding, you've yeah. mentioned trust, and you've mentioned your why. Yeah. And you've bundled those ideas together. Yeah. And Linda, our sister, was a beautiful and brilliant marketer. She, okay. And she had done a marketing degree. And the flavor then, the spin that she put on from a brand and PR perspective for us was actually the difference between us okay. getting our marketing right. Because it was professional from the start <laughs> okay. because of her. 
and uh, she deserves a lot of credit for that because if we didn't have her expertise then we would have fudged it we would have been busy doing the doing we worked seven days a week for the first three four years it was just full-on all of a sudden we're coaching 2,000 children a week it expanded real fast and that was because we were teaching I believe the Vitanis values yeah right from mum and dad and the way we were brought up and the vehicle was sport you can go and teach a footballer or a netballer but ultimately when you treat people with the respect you want the parents are just saying do you know my son James he's he's just transformed yeah thank you so much and that legacy will live with me forever and I'm so proud of Linda and Chris and the team well I, I really love that um, in any business I think if you can get the values to shine the why it's far more valuable than mm. the than the what you know yeah. what are we selling while well, we're exporting things or we're teaching kids or we're doing digital marketing what you know whatever it is the why is uh it's attractive yeah people get excited and and envisioned by it yeah i think that the, the marketplace was very unprofessional because it was you know someone with a bag of sports equipment over their <laughs> shoulder right and okay. that's not there's nothing wrong with that that's people doing great work in the community at grassroots level, right? Yeah. But Linda made it for us, this professional coaching with personal care. Yeah. And what that was, that was the why and the glue of being a professional outfit from the way we were dressed to the way we'd show. Right? Yes, Our okay. equipment, the investment yeah. we made, the venues we used, and then the personal care was just... <sighs> I remember we ran a course of 110 children and Chris and I set up these two tables at the reception of this college and 110 children turned up and the parents would drop off their child but then stand about 10 to 15 metres back okay. from the registration table and they waited until 110 children had been checked in and they'd walk up to the table again and go, how do you do that? <laughs> and we were, we'd greet uh, every child by their first name with a shake of the hand. Yeah. Girl, boy, eight years old, 15 years old. Showing them respect. Yeah. You're outlining your point of difference there, really. Yep. And that's it's, come out of your values. Yeah, and I think, you know, the work we do today in, with core values, it's still understated and yet so critical to everything. When values are aligned, everything flows. Yeah. Right? Your purpose flows, your spirituality flows because you know you're in the right space, delivering the right service to the right people. Right? Yes. There's no push and pull. No, no, and your no. energy is your yeah. energy so high that you just you just know that you are doing such a service for the people who are the most grateful and appreciative of it. And therefore, yes, the, the commercial model has to absolutely stack up. And there, and I've, I've met a lot of business owners over the past who have done absolutely passionate work, but they've also forgotten the numbers and how that commercial model okay. stack up as well. Go the other way. Yeah, okay. of course it can. And, and that's one mistake we made in Team Elite in the early days. We were so passionately driven to building the right team, delivering the service to excellence that we actually, I personally, I'll take responsibility for that. I took my eye off the ball on what the business needed in terms of cash flow yes. and forecasting, right? Because it was just yeah. driven out of sheer grit and passion. <laughs> gotcha. So I learned a big lesson because after the first four years, it was like a big wake up call. Okay. So you hit cash flow issues? Massively. Yeah. Massively. We couldn't sustain our overheads. So we were taking on great people. We didn't always have enough work to maximize their utilization of their gotcha. services. So they became frustrated. So sometimes that was a risk of losing them as you would with any contract work. Um, but then we, we had another epiphany. Who else do we need <laughs> in this boardroom <laughs> yeah. that's going to make us right, stabilize this business? 
uh, and it was a finance guy. Uh, so Just I went, needed someone who's yeah. looking after that. And when Dave joined our business as financial manager and then director, then our world changed. Happy it, days. Well, it wasn't happy at the start. It was very, very tough conversations because he opened our eyes to our real numbers. Then we really realized that we, we weren't hitting the right model uh, and we were on a bit of a pipe dream, not a pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong pipe. The wrong pipe. <laughs> So the first thing Chris and I sat down and had a strategy day and we said, what do we really need? What don't we know? Yes, okay. And we got a government grant. What a great so we, question. We danced around a couple of options and marketing definitely came up. Yeah. We spent 25 grand on marketing, which we should definitely have put, first of all, to the business coach and framework. So that marketing dollar, whilst it produced some really glossy, awesome collateral, it wasn't the best use of our money then. And you'd see a lot of this, right, at the online co. It's just people are throwing money trying to fix something that's actually a symptom and not the core our core no, issue is right. we weren't structured yeah marketing can be used to amplify a bad business and create problems yeah. <laughs> but yeah you're going you want to get your business right first then amplify it yeah because for the sole reason of this the marketing great we spent it did we get the roi Absolutely. Oh, another thousand members sign up, right? Yeah. However, in order to deliver to those children and young people, <laughs> right, we've realized that the profitability wasn't there. So we weren't really making any gains yes. apart from the ego being stroked and the fact that people were saying how amazing we were and that they love Team Elite and it became a, a real brand in the south coast of England. So, yeah, we got this, the business coach to do a strategy with us for three years, 2003 to 2006. And Dave supported that with financial modeling, which stacked up and therefore gave us the confidence and also clarity where we thought, now we know what our business model actually is. Gotcha. So I wish I'd done that at the start. <laughs> Are you receiving SEO emails all week from random people offering to do some SEO service that you don't really understand? Well, you'll never guess. We get them as well and we do SEO. There's a myth out there that essentially you can trick Google into making your website on the first page and that it'll get you loads of business and it'll be fantastic forevermore. Unfortunately, that idea is nonsense. The truth about SEO is that when somebody types in your keyword and they're looking for your product or service, that you need to provide the very best information to that person. This is where we talk about putting people first. Your website needs to be fantastic. It needs to talk to that person, solve their problem, and be super helpful. This is just one of the ideas we talk about in our digital marketing playbook, where we come across and look at a holistic digital marketing plan for you. If you need help with SEO or your overall digital marketing planning, we'd love to hear from you. You can book a quick chat at theonlineco.net. Now, as a native Sydneyite myself, having mm. grown up in Australia, I totally understand the bug that you caught at some point, and yep. and you've decided that you wanted to exit that business. You wanted to put a plan together so you could move to Sydney. Yeah. So even when we sat down to establish the brand and the logo at Linda's dining table in '97, I did say to Chris and Linda, "I want to sell the business in ten years." And they said, "What are you talking about?" Linda was up for that because she was an investor. Right. Chris couldn't see it. And nor did he want that because he wanted us to work forevermore. And the bottom line is I knew there was another journey for me. Okay. And um, I said to Chris, look, it's going to be an exit for me if we build this strategy out. And then I think we're going to be saleable. 
Right. Wasn't what he wanted to hear. <laughs> so how did that arrive? Obviously, you've got to figure that out with your siblings. Well, my, my wife, Lynn's an Aussie. Lynn and I got reunited in 2001, married in 2002. Mia was born in 2004. James was born in 2005, her son. And in 2006, we migrated to Australia. Right. If you've ever heard of uh, the Colby Index, which is around the way your energy is profiled, it's called it's conative training. My profile is a two, three, nine, five, and nine stands for a real fast starter. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Let's go. When, when there's an idea on the table, <laughs> I, I want to get into it, right? So when we had that picture, it was also in line with my 40th birthday. And I don't know, I'm a bit spiritual like that. I just think there was a call in that said it's going to be there now or never. I started to systemize the business according to that strategy. In July 05, we became a systemized business. And in the November, we got a phone call to purchase us out of the blue. Right. But I think when you line yourself up for what you want, you better be careful what you wish yeah. for. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got it. That's right. Okay, so then you come to Australia. You got a wealth of knowledge, but no business. Yeah, that's a toughie to speak about because I still wonder... To this day, James, what the hell was I doing? <laughs> and um, if you don't mind, I, I, I've got to call on my faith on this one. Yeah. And I know you won't mind, but I think I hope the listeners won't mind. I'd made a profound decision that I was going to make a move. I owed it to Lynn. Now, you can imagine, right, you're one of big family. Yeah. You're now going to move at 40 to Australia. You're crazy, right? <laughs> Little kids. And, uh, and what would people <laughs> default to as perception and reality, right? It would be you're doing it for your wife. You're crazy, including my mates. And I just used to respond to them. I said, be careful with that because if it makes you uncomfortable that I'm moving, that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing for me. Yeah. And that was a profound moment in me. I remember at Easter time, April 2006, it's Easter Sunday. Mum's lent over the breakfast bar at her house, just about to have Easter lunch with her and dad and some of the family. And she said, Rog, what are you going to do in Australia? She was always the warrior. Well, I'm still the baby, right? <laughs> 40 years old. And uh, I look back at her and I absolutely had no control of my body. Right. And out of my lips came, I'm going to help business owners, Mum, but I don't know what it looks like. Okay. <laughs> And yeah. from that moment in time, I kid you not, I was just like, wow, that is my calling. And if that's what I feel, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. And I've always backed myself. I always know I can go and create relationships and networks. I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue was trying to define provision <laughs> for the family. Right, income. So yeah. it's a very scary time. Absolutely. So your dad's taught you a work ethic early doors and then you've learned around trade and all of that through working for your brother. And then the next business, the coaching business, you've systematized, you've learned about marketing, you've learned hard financial lessons. Every business person's got to learn those. Yeah. Um, and you come to a point of saying, well, I've got all this experience, I'd like to help other people. Yes. So what does step one look like? Well, step one coming to Australia was a loss, first of all. So when you give up your business and it's been your baby, you feel grief and you don't even know right. why you're feeling it. But I had no awareness when I was sitting here in Sydney six months later that I was actually grieving for, okay. le for leaving the country, for leaving my family, for leaving the business behind, leaving my brother, yeah. what I felt sort of letting him down. Yeah. 
think that makes sense. You'd, so, you'd lost was, a lot. So emotional. And, um, and then I came to a reality. And to be fair to Lynn, she was saying, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so I looked after Mia and James, who were very small babies in the strollers. Yeah. And uh, I loved it for three months. And she went to work in the city because she could. And uh, I thought, wow, this is okay. It's okay to take a pause and Absolutely. try to define what it is I really yeah. want. Um, but wow, do you become desperate quick? Because yeah. you lose your identity, okay. right? And then every phone call you're making, people are saying, do you have local experience? Mm. And quite honestly, I'm thinking, what the hell does that even mean? Like, do you mean, <laughs> do, I have, do I have business experience? Yeah, Is yeah. Australia run business differently? Do, than do the... you need to know how to work a kangaroo or something? <laughs> I don't know. I, knew, I never knew what that meant. What I did know after about six months of looking for work was, okay, maybe 40 is not the age that you're looking for <laughs> or you're going to try and ask me to take a particular role which probably doesn't suit my circumstances. Gotcha. Bottom line is, James, there were many, many days that I'll sit on my bed and just be in tears and just realise, oh, shit, I think I've made a bad, bad mistake. Right. And uh, I'd look on people's websites who wanted to meet with me and I'd go, well, what have I got to offer? I just lost complete confidence. Wow. It was a dark place. I became quite an angry man, um, very irate. And it was all because I just didn't have significance to offer anybody. Well, that's what I thought. And then I got my first breakthrough. The Gilchrist family asked me to come do some business consultancy with them in the cricketing world because of my sports background, which was good. As in Adam Gilchrist family? Yeah, Adam's brother. Oh, he's my favourite cricket player. Well, there ever. you go. We, so we better not go on that tangent. Maybe this is not. A business but they're, well, they're just a lo lovely family <laughs> and they gave me my first step up which wow. I'm very grateful for. And I worked with him a couple of years. And uh, after that, trying to find that vehicle, I became a business broker. Did my license in 15 weeks, locked myself in the study, right. put my head yeah. down and just learned the modules so I could go out and learn what this local experience meant. <laughs> and I'd just keep talking to business owners and saying, well, how can I help you? And they'd say, we're trying to sell, we're on the market. Can you value my business? Uh, why aren't we selling? Can you tell me? Uh, how much do you charge? Right. Businesses were in chaos because they're being told by an industry that they can sell a business that's unsaleable. Now, to me, that's not just insane, but it's completely immoral. So here I am now, tagged as a business broker in a world where most people are not being told the truth. You couldn't get more <laughs> far away from my moral compass right. than that. So I the was truth as in, you can sell this, it's valuable. And it's not. It's not systematized. The business is all in the owner's head, all that sort of stuff. For what I learned was I'll take your listing because it will make me look good <laughs> so I can tell other people I've got listings. Because at the end of the day, you can go on there and it's still like this today that probably 75, 80% of those businesses will, will not sell. Okay? And the truth of the matter is I started to tell people the truth and they started to perk up sometimes months later, sometimes the next year okay. or two later. And they'd say, hey, listen, you're right. We haven't had one phone call. So I started to give free consultancy away. In order to sell the businesses? Yeah. And yeah. Lynn was telling me at home, you are really not good at this job. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, look, at the end of the day, I, I was prepared to starve my family for the sake of building a reputation again. Yep. And I think that's come from right down from dad's days is don't shift from who you are. You're here to try and help somebody. And, and my faith is telling me, just tell them the truth. They'll have to deal with it. And what they were asking me in response was, well, can you help me? 
Yeah. Can you help me understand our numbers? Can you help me really understand how to sell a business? So it became a roadmap for me. How can I actually help? So again, pretty much faith-driven. I continued to give some free consulting. No one was prepared to pay something of just advice at that time. Also, I was using it as my training. So yeah, it was an investment for me. And whilst, don't get me wrong, Lynn and my relationship was a, a very on thin ice at that moment because we didn't see eye to eye on that. Okay. <laughs> and why would we, right? I was doing her and the family a disservice, let's face it. But I had this inner belief in me that it was going to lead to something that was the greater good, right? About six months later, I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Daniel Davis through my lawyer who was doing the sale purchase agreements. Because don't get me wrong, we sold some businesses. Yeah. But the gap was bothering me because people were not being told the truth, but also their livelihoods were being played with. Yeah. That's unacceptable. So when Daniel and I met each other, he had started a business called Gallup Solutions, and it was literally educating business owners on how to do it better. Yeah. Right? Management system, framework, etc. And I transitioned to working with Daniel. We worked with about 400 companies, teaching them how to run businesses better to be more profitable, efficient, and fun. And it's led me to the work I do now today with EOS because it's same purpose, yes. just different model, different toolkit. But now I just realize, I look back on what I'm sharing with you today and I think it was all just meant to be. Yeah, all stepping stones. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about EOS. Yep. So EOS was born out of a, a genius man called Gino Wickman. He joined the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is known as the EO. It's a global non-for-profit. Okay. It's where entrepreneurs, founders, and uh, CEOs meet on a monthly forum as a group. What the profound moment was for Gino was he starts to realize he's got a bit of a knack of understanding that these issues okay. are all core symptoms of the more pointy stuff. So he designed a model, started to clobber some tools together, developed it into EOS which was the entrepreneur's operating system. So it's a set of real-world, practical, simple tools. And there's now, apart from myself and Gino, there's 400-odd implementers globally. And they teach the process of implementing the system at the leadership level and then cascades into the business over the journey that we work together. So we're sort of a facilitator, teacher, and coach, literally with three different hats. Okay. So we impart wisdom. We teach the tools and then we facilitate the leadership becoming more open and honest with each other and more cohesive and functional because when we get the leadership right, a lot goes right from there on in. So I've got to declare my hand here. I'm a big fan of the EOS. I read the book Traction by yes. Gino four years ago. Yep. And I've read pretty much everything else he's ever written. If, if someone's listening, where would you suggest they get started? Yeah, eosworldwide.com okay. is the website. the website. One of the things that really attracted Dan and I to EOS is just the abundance mindset of the group. And from Gino's intent and purpose to help thousands of entrepreneurs, you know, there's 100,000 businesses running on EOS now globally right. so he abundantly used links in the book and online to allow people to Just download the tool get yep. going with it you know it. i loved that because that's a little bit like i was in business broken you know yeah i was just trying to help people so it really hand in glove values aligned we've got five core values humbly confident grow or die help first do the right thing do what you say yeah and when i read those values i thought 
when I look at my family and my yeah, business yeah, travels, I just think, wow, that's just absolute seamless. So good on him and thank you to him. And thank you to Daniel for bringing it to Australia. And it's just been an absolute privilege and honor to just help entrepreneurs to, to get what they want out of their business. Uh, just putting my marketing hat on for a second. Mm. Uh, you're talking about help first. Uh, one of our values is generosity. And Lovely. we know that if we're generous yes. and we give away information and we're giving away information with this podcast and our website. And we, right. You know, we do free workshops and you know a whole bunch of things like mm. that. We know we're just going to help a lot of people. And some of them will engage us. Most won't. Sure. But that's okay. Yes. You know, if we can help hundreds of people, we'll get a handful. Yeah. And isn't that what you've just defined, the abundance mindset? Absolutely. Yeah. Because we can't help everybody. We're not big enough. We're not no. good enough. That's right? right. And we're not broad enough. And not everybody fits. And that's Certainly okay. not. But that's what I love about, you know, you, you say in your own marketing and your own purpose about putting people first, right? Mm. And I love that because I think we've forgotten how to do it. You know, one thing we did really well in the servos and freight forwarding and then back into the sports business is we treated people the way we wish to be treated. And um, look, (laughs) anyone in HR out there, don't have a go at me. But the bottom line is, I think when HR became a thing, it's like (laughs) everyone started to think, oh, I need to be more legal. I need to be more formal. Right. I need to be more careful. And the fact is, don't don't ever forget that people want the same thing as us. They need purpose. They want to be masters of their game. Yeah. Right. And they need some autonomy around. They, Daniel Pink wrote this in his oh. book Drive. Yeah. Yes. And they want to reach their potential. And our jobs in business and leadership and management is to say, who you are today, is not who you're going to be by the time I've finished with you yeah. <laughs> or you've come through a journey with me, whatever way we'll you wish to say. We'll include a link to that book in the show Yeah, notes. do so. I think uh, this stuff's that, great. That work on autonomy is fantastic. It is. All right. So you're having a chat with a business person and they're stuck. That yeah. word stuck comes yeah. up a lot. I've, we've been here for two years. We're not growing. You know, what, whatever's going on. What's your advice to someone that's stuck? You've got to ask them the right questions about how vulnerable they're willing to be. Okay. So you know when I said to you earlier about Chris and I literally sat in that Hampshire Cricket Club's boardroom, which we hired out at the time, and Shane Warne was over there okay. running our elite program for us. And uh, we asked ourselves, what don't we know? Yeah. We knew quite a bit, but a lot was missing. Yeah. So I think I always try to find like how vulnerable are you willing to go and what you don't know so we can have a real conversation about what the gaps are. So to coin the Jim Collins part, it's like you're a good business but you know you could be doing it better. So it's a good to great journey, right? Yeah. It's another what, book we'll reference. Oh, still favorites. one of my favorites, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like just pressing the pause button and saying, listen, what's the real problem? Yeah, are you and prepared to get honest and, and be a little humble? You know? Yeah. And what's beautiful about our process is it, we take the time to do that with 90 minutes together in a room <laughs> where the management leadership team come in here and actually peel back and say, you know what? This is a learning experience for all of us. It's not an assumption we're going to work together, but it just gives us that capacity of time and a window to go, what have we been doing in this business? <laughs> and are we going to change something? Yeah. And if we are, then the tools and the system and the process wraps around the, the business and away we go. Now, we started by talking about your massive family of origin and now you have a smaller family of your own. Um, your family is very important yeah, to you. Yeah, it is. And uh, 
I'm looking away now, aren't I? Because you've touched on it. <laughs> you've touched my nerve. I love my family, James. And I just, all I know is that from the time dad taught me that humble lesson of never ask someone to do something you're not prepared to do yourself all the way through to all his, and to about mum and dad and brother Des and brother Chris and sister Linda and all the people, whether I've been in business with them or not, I have been blessed yeah. just to have this love, support and consideration around me. And yet I know that I've always put my business first, my work first, to achieve as much excellence as I can. That doesn't always sit comfortably with me. Yeah. And um, whilst I'm very proud of what I've achieved, it's only because of other people why I've achieved it. And I really mean that. Yeah. You, you can't do anything on your own. It's you true. know, with Lynn's support, the kids support me and my EOS community, you know, you, you can't do anything on your own. You know, you get what you give. But I just hope that um, I'll leave the business world one day, whenever that is, and I can't see that being anytime soon. <laughs> but when I leave it, I hope I'm recognised as someone who, you know, looked after his family and did put them first, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? And, um, yeah. you know, you want to be successful and you want to bless your family financially, but yeah. uh, they actually want you more than your money, don't they? Yes. They want your time. They want yeah. your, your heart. Yeah, the way I describe that is we're, we're transforming the lives of entrepreneurs, and I mean it. Like, we yeah. see them in a different mental state, emotional state, right, confidence state when their business goes well, right? And it is hugely, hugely satisfying to help someone on that journey. Right. And then one thing we've got to do is think, do I live that life? Yeah. Uh, am I doing justice to myself okay. as well, right? So we call it the EOS life. And we say five things. It's doing what you love with people you love. Yeah? yeah. Making a significant difference. Getting compensated appropriately and having time to pursue other passions. Yeah, wonderful. That's a wonderful balance. And whatever you focus on the most, you're going to get the bigger results right. out of, right? So just to me, it's about making sure the balance is there. And to live it, honestly, it's just something else. That was Roger Vatanis. You can find him on LinkedIn or learn more about his work at leadershipcounts.com.au. He mentioned a few books there, a couple of my favorites, and you can find reference to those in the show notes. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation, Jess. Um, I love to pick apart some of the things. There's too much for us to go over There was all. a lot in that, yeah. wasn't it? Uh, but he talked about selling the why, marketing yeah. the why over and above the what. Mm. Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, that was really the key point of difference for, for Roger and Team Elite, wasn't it? So, yeah. you know, people don't buy into the what. We know what you're selling, right? You go to Coles, you want a Snickers bar, you know what you're getting. It's the why. People buy into emotions. Because I need to be satisfied. I need to be satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Snickers, for branding me that way. Yes. So the why, the reason why you're doing something is what people connect with. And that's more important and that's going to get you a lot further in business than saying, hey, I have this product, come and buy this product. It doesn't give you any difference from your competitors. Right. But why you do it, that is what makes you different from your competitors. Yeah, and it's linked with who you are. That's right. So your why will come through through all of your marketing. With your social media as an example, you know, we can use video. We can do video testimonials. We can do video interviews and you can talk to your why. And that gives people a really authentic look at your business and look into who you are 
And then people are more likely going to identify with you and want to become customers from there. Yeah, absolutely. It, it appeals to something a little bit deeper. It does, it does. So the online co, we talk about putting people first. Mm. It's very easy to look at SEO or something just as something very technical. But if you understand that there's a real human sitting there looking at your website and you put that person first, uh, all of a sudden that's a much more profound why. It is, yeah. We're going to actually help someone. Yeah. I mean, you, you could easily just be another one of those companies that send spam emails and say, hey, want me <laughs> to fix right. your SEO? <laughs> yeah. But it makes us no different from anyone else, does that's it? That's right. So, James, I'd love to get your insights into growing a sporting franchise and balancing the marketing with all other areas of business. Yeah, so Roger talked about how he got his cash flow wrong and he got into some mm. problems there. And if you're running a business, there's five pillars. There's your marketing and your sales, that's two. Then there's your finance, then there's your operations, and then there's your people. And if you look at that as like a five-legged stool, if you've got all five legs equal length, you've got a nice stable stool. But if you chop two of those legs off, you've got a stool that might stand up, but it might fall over too. And so it's quite easy just to ignore the finance, for example, mm. Or maybe not look after your people right and then your business is in a bit of trouble. In this case, Roger had his operations really solid and he had his sales really solid mm. and he had his people really solid. Then he brought his sister in. So he had a really great business with a great USP. And when the marketing turned onto that, it then amplified a really good business and appealed to a lot of people. So he got all those bits right. Now, hypothetically you could turn the marketing off and that business would have just grown slowly and organically mm. it still would have grown just slowly the marketing is about getting that message into as many ears and minds as possible and i'm, I'm really grateful that roger was open about that cash flow piece yeah because the whole thing falls over if your cash goes yeah and out. it really highlighted that didn't it yeah. It sort of really spoke to that five pillars that you're talking about. So I would be looking to say, when should I invest in marketing? And I think you just got to get your operations right at the start. And once that's solid, then you've got something to really talk about. Yeah. Do you think it's worth speaking to marketing professionals or even you know professionals in areas of those other pillars all at the same time to get a gauge of where you are within those different areas? Yeah, well, Roger's point about he didn't know what he didn't know was so important. Yeah. So you want to have a good accountant, a bookkeeper in there to look after the finance, and that's probably what Roger didn't have. Mm. And when you talk to a marketing person, they're just going to open your eyes to a whole a bunch of things. And obviously that's our process with the playbook of going through yeah. and really analysing all the different components that are going to need to pull together to do a, a holistic marketing plan that that actually makes a difference yeah coming up next week if you do a bit of real estate reading or viewing you might already be familiar with our guest he's steve waters the founder and director of right property group steve's a respected authority in the investment property game in australia he makes regular appearances on tv and in print and the story of how he got into the real estate game is quite surprising this episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co, produced by Claire Bruce, music by Harry Parnwell, and you can find us at theonlineco.net. If you've enjoyed this or you know someone who would be helped and encouraged by this, we'd love you to share it, subscribe to us, and leave us a review.